Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. It's good to be with you guys this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series called Clarity. We've been going through looking at just some of the things that the scripture is making more and more clear uh, as we go through the gospel of Mark. There's some things that, whether it's encounters with the disciples, with sick people, or with Pharisees and, and teachers of the law, that as Jesus interacts with them, there's just some things that are becoming more clear, not only to us, but to those who are in the actual center of what's happening in the scriptures right now, whether that be in Galilee or, or throughout Israel or this week, uh, crossing the borders to the north, um, Jesus is making it more and more clear who he is, what he stands for, and what it looks like uh, to follow him in his kingdom. This morning, as we read, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. And the title this morning, I'll just tell you right off the bat, and you can try to figure out why I titled it that. It's a fun game, right? The title is Clarity, The Boundaries of Blessing. The Boundaries of Blessing. That sounds weird, but hopefully it'll become clear as we go on. So if you wouldn't mind reading with me, uh, if you're in your Bible, your app, or on the screens to the right and left of stage. We're going to start, like I said, in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. It says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child laying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So, Father, I thank you for your word. I pray your Holy Spirit would speak through me this morning. Will these words be yours? And now mine, would you give us ears to hear? God, would you be glorified through the reading and understanding of your word here this morning? We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. A little bit to chew on and understand in there, right? Uh, you can't read that and not have a few questions come up in our mind. There's 
so much happening culturally, the time and place that these conversations were happening, that we just don't really have a category to put some of these interactions in. Full disclosure on this week, um, and maybe you guys can relate with me on this. There's times where we go through scripture and we read it and there's something that like really touches us, right? Because we believe that God's word is living and every time we read it, like there's something more to gain and no matter how many times you read these stories, these parables, God unveils more and more of himself to us. And this week and in the weeks prior as I've been preparing for this, some of the things about this scripture that really ministered to my heart weren't what God wanted me to preach about this morning. And I, that may seem insignificant to you guys, but I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to go here, and we're going to go here again, and this is going to be awesome. It's like, no, 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 no. Here's where we're going to go this morning. Here's what I want you to teach my people, my church, and so we're going there. We're going there, and I think that the fact that God was that clear about it, there's some things about these interactions that he really wants us to understand. He wants us to understand and I bring that up not because like, oh, you guys, it was such a hard week for me trying to like process through this. But don't feel bad if that's you. If we're going through this, you're like, okay, that's interesting stuff. That's good stuff. But when I read it, this really encourages my spirit too. Like that's how it should be as we read the word. Every time we read it, something God's going to be tugging in our heart. He's going to be teaching us something. And that's okay. That's how the living word works. It just continues to unpack and unveil itself. The Holy Spirit just continues to bring more fullness of our understanding into it. So I just wanted to want to encourage you in that. As you read it, there may be something that God really ministers to your heart, and it may not be exactly what we talk about this morning or any given week, and that's okay. That's what the Scripture does. That doesn't mean you get to define your own truth. It just means it ministers to each of us in a different way. So this morning, we're going to talk about the truth of exactly what this is speaking. Now, we need to understand that Jesus Christ is the greatest missionary who ever lived. And this highlights that for us. Like, the, the greatest missionary who ever lived. He came the greatest distance, right, from heaven to earth to bring the good news of salvation. And he also made the greatest sacrifice, giving his life in the place of sinners that we might be reconciled to God. And in spite of having no planes or trains or, or cars or any way to, to get around like we do today, he in his brief three years of earthly ministry, he made time to travel here to foreign soil to show us what it means to live out the Great Commission. He showed us what Great Commission Christianity looks like here, demonstrating beyond question that God's kingdom knows no ethnic, racial, national, or gender barriers. He's breaking all of those things that maybe in the Jewish culture were existing at the time and saying, nah, that's not how the kingdom of my father rules. And he's making that very clear. In fact, all who come to him will find salvation from the one who could not escape being noticed. You guys see that? Like every time he goes somewhere, he can't escape being noticed. He went up to the region of Tyre and he went to this house and he was just trying to lay low so he could get a little R&R. But people knew he was there. Everywhere he goes, he can't help but be noticed. And he's the one, as we read at the end of the scripture, who does everything well. Mark sets aside these two healing miracles that take place in pagan Gentile territory. This wasn't like a territory that was steeped in Jewish culture and religious traditions. In fact, this was a very pagan Gentile um, territory. And one of these is a healing of a demon-possessed little girl, and the other is a healing of a deaf man with a speech impediment. 
And both demonstrate that God's kingdom has come and that Jesus is God's man for all peoples. Not just the Jewish people, not just people in Jerusalem or in that region, but for all of God's people. And this was contrary to religious and racial bigots that would say that people can be too unclean or too far from God for him to reach. It says, in fact, all people, no matter how unclean, can receive the blessing and the touch of Jesus Christ. This is the God who amazes. As we read time and time again, it seems like every week people are astonished or amazed and Jesus can't hide. Like that's just time after time a theme throughout these Gospels. So as we unpack this, the first thing in verses 24 through 30 is we see that Jesus is the Savior who cannot be hidden. He can't escape. He can't just go hang out in the house and we're like, he cannot be hidden. You see, our Lord knew that his father had mapped out his life from beginning to end, and it would involve days of happiness, as well as times of trial and opposition, pressure and disappointment. Like, he knew that. It wasn't a surprise to him. And Jesus had just engaged the Pharisees in this heated discussion over religion versus the gospel, if you remember last week. And things are building in this inevitable showdown that is going to climax with a crucifixion and a death on the cross. But we are not there yet. It's not yet the appointed time. But we can see things continuing to rise. We see like the tensions and the conflict building. And, and they almost happen quicker each time he moves locations. And he's more and more seen. And people are more aware of his presence. So Jesus leaves Galilee to get away from his enemies and to spend some time teaching his disciples and, as I mentioned, get a little R&R. However, he's denied that, or he's denied the latter, and in the process, he teaches us some spiritual truths about the heart of God. In this first story, yes, there's this miracle, the healing, but there's some things about the heart of God that are unveiled in this that we need to understand. First is that Jesus cares for the nations, and therefore so should we. He cares for the nations. He heads up north to the district of Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, if you're curious. And he goes to the seaport of Tyre. And he went there primarily for rest, but he could not keep his presence secret, as we've highlighted already. Now, this isn't surprising because if we go back to chapter 3, there was a delegation from Tyre and Sidon that had come to see him. So the people in the region, we have already read about them engaging in the ministry of Jesus. And furthermore, the glory of the Son of God just can't be kept hidden. Like, there's the, all the cultural and logistical aspects of it, but this is the Son of God, for goodness sakes. Like, you just can't keep hidden what he has come to do in the message that he is preaching. The fact that Jesus chose to get away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, though, is significant. It's not just some random city like, oh, cool, Tyre, I want to go there someday, I'll put that on my bucket list. Like, no, there, there's something to this. And as best as we can tell, this is the only time that Jesus ventured beyond the borders of Israel, as far as we can tell. The only time that he's left the borders of Israel. And Tyre and Sidon were inhabited by pagan Gentiles, and the region had a long history of opposition to Israel. This wasn't necessarily friendly territory. It wasn't some vacation destination where it's like, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to head out to Tyre for the week. It's going to be great. Like, no, this was a place that was known for opposition. It was not friendly territory. This had once been the home of Jezebel, who both Ezekiel and Zechariah prophesied against. There's a long history here. And New Testament scholar James Edwards says this in his commentary. 
Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could ever expect to encounter. Not like, oh yeah, this place is a little off the rockers, but like the, the most intense that they would probably experience. Yet, Jesus goes there and graciously expands the scope and reach of the Messiah beyond what Israel expected. He crosses over borders. He crosses over boundaries to expand the scope of the work of the Messiah and what was expected. Unfortunately, like Jonah, if you're familiar with his story, too many of the Jews of that day could not imagine that God would extend his salvation beyond the borders of Israel. That just wasn't part of their paradigm. That God, this is for us. Like we read the Old Testament and what God says about the people of Israel, and they just couldn't fathom that God would have a heart for people outside of those borders, outside of their religious traditions. But this Savior, Jesus, is not just for one nation. He's for all nations, and we should be as well. Plus, we're part of every nation, churches, so it just works out, right? But it can't just be an affiliation, it can't just be a title, it can't just be a sermon preached. It needs to be a part of our life, the way in which we engage initially with other people and other people groups. This Savior is not just for Israel, it's for all nations. The second thing we learn here is that God has a heart for the Jews, and so should we. He has a heart for the Jews. Word gets out quickly that Jesus is in the house, and a most unlikely individual shows up and asks for his help. She's a Gentile woman, and she is Syrophoenician by birth, which means she's Syrian, Phoenician, Syrophoenician, just a way of combining those. Matthew 15, 22, which is a correlating scripture, calls her a Canaanite woman. That's how she's referred to. She's a pagan Gentile woman who could not be further from, as Paul says in Ephesians, the citizenship of Israel. She's far removed from the religious traditions and affiliations that people would expect Jesus to be ministering within. And there's no doubt that she knew that it was socially unacceptable for her to approach a Jewish rabbi for any reason. And that's what Jesus was. Remember, he was a Jewish rabbi is how he was viewed culturally. Yet she begged persistently for Jesus to drive out the demon from her daughter. She came boldly, but humbly as we read, she fell at his feet she was persistent. She came boldly, but was humbly persistent. And Jesus' verbal response here is one of the most shocking and controversial statements like that he made. This is one that is debated, people take offense to, that can be misunderstood. When he says, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Okay. Now, for us here in the United States, we're like, oh, toss it to the dogs. Yeah, because dogs are cute, and dogs are like my fur babies, and dogs, right? Like, we think of dogs as just another member of a family. But that's not how they were viewed here. Dogs were pesky, mangy scavengers. Like, that was the idea of what a pet was. Some of us went to Sierra Leone last year, and we saw that this isn't just a thing of 2,000 years ago. Like, in other places, dogs aren't viewed the same as they are here. I hate to break it to you. They're similar to like a possum or a raccoon that is just kind of a, a scavenger that roams around in neighborhoods. And that is the popular way that people referred to, or called people dogs, that is the way that they were often, things they were saying. It wasn't like, oh, you're a cute little puppy. Like, no, it was like, why should I give you the food, the children's food, to these dogs? 
and it was a derogatory thing that Jewish people commonly used to refer to Gentiles. So you can understand why if you read this, you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is calling this woman a dog. Like, that's not very kind. Like, where's the compassion? Where's the heart in that? But as we know with the original language, there's nuance to the words, right? And there's two words that refer to dogs. And one is the kind of more derogatory, like scavenger word. And one is like more of a puppy endeared kind of house pet, like an endearing term towards it. And that is actually the version of the word that Jesus is using. So rest assured. But still, he's, he's referring to it as an animal. So there's something to be unpacked here, but it's not this, you know, derogatory term, how you may hear someone refer to a dog here in our culture. And it sounds like a massive insult that is unworthy of Jesus, but that's not actually what his real words are saying. His words are more of a parable rather than a direct statement. And like I said, the word he used for dogs is one that corresponds to, to puppies, not a street scavenger more of a household pet. Now there's a crucial word here, first, that we need to take. See, we can get so caught up in like, he just called her a dog. But what he's actually talking about, he says, first, Jesus was testing this woman's faith by saying, I must first minister to Israel, which was viewed as the children of God. I must first minister to Israel before I minister to the Gentiles. Which Paul said the same thing in Romans 16. He said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Say first, first, thank you, Doc, to the Jew and also to the Greek. As much as uncomfortable as it makes us to think that God might have favorites, there is this aspect of election as to the people of God, this covenant that goes back to Abraham of God's people of Israel and the promise. That is there. <clears throat> Our Lord has a deep love for the Jewish nation. We read in Matthew 23 that he wept bitterly over her rejection of him as their Messiah. There's something special about that connection. And in spite of Israel's unbelief, he still loves her. God is not through with the Jews. And to this day, he is not through with the Jewish people. Paul in Romans 11, 25 through 29 makes this crystal clear. He writes this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come to Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. His call on that people is irrevocable. So God cares for Jewish people. He cares about the Jewish people. That's part of his heart. And therefore, it should be for us as well. But then moving forward, we see that Jesus cares for the individual also. So he cares for the nations, he cares for a special place in his heart for these Jewish people, but he cares for the individual, the plight of the individual, our situations which he can identify with and empathize. You see, it would have been easy for this woman after this was Jesus' response, like, 
Why, why should I give the dogs food when the children have it to eat? Why should I give the children's food to them? It would have been so easy for her to get offended and walk away in some sort of bitter disappointment, right? Like, it's probably how I would react. Like, oh, well, all right, this is not my day. Yet she fires back with a burst of boldness. Pastor and Tim Keller says there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there's this other category, parents. <laughs> Then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage. Because if your child's in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save them. And we see this happening here. She's like, no, my daughter is oppressed. She is possessed by this demon she needs delivered. I'm not taking this first little offense and just going to give up because my daughter needs this man to heal her, to deliver her. And with wit, with courage and faith, the woman responds. Not, she doesn't take offense, she simply responds and carries his analogy one step further. She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What insight and humility and faith she has in this statement. And Jesus commends her for it and says, go, your daughter's healed. Go, your daughter's healed. A magnificent piece of or a picture of salvation that we have in this story. A magnificent picture of salvation here. Because if we will, are willing to acknowledge that, yes, Lord, we all, before being saved by you, are like dogs under the table with no rights whatsoever as members of your family. We're separated from you. And if we will acknowledge that we don't deserve a place at the table and just a few crumbs would be enough, that, that's like where we start out at, right? Before Jesus saves us fills us up. But then with grace and mercy, our Savior lifts us, no longer as this proverbial dog or sinner, but as a child who is saved by him. No longer under the table, but now a member of the family with a seat at the table. Not because we earned it, but because our faith and his grace and mercy gifts it to us. So a question this brings up is, are you willing to recognize Recognize that our sin places us in this story as the dog, <laughs> right? Now it goes from reading, like, oh, Jesus called someone else out to like, oh, might be us. But Jesus transforms our place in the story to being a child. He transforms our place in the story. God transforms your life, your place to being his child, having rights at the place, at the table. And maybe as you receive that, you, you think, like, ah, oh, my sin's greater than I realize. And I pray that as, as you come to realize that, that you also simultaneously will receive the truth that his grace is greater than you could ever imagine. So whereas the, the status of where your sin should place you, what you've earned, might be worse than maybe you're willing to acknowledge, at the same time, his grace is so much greater than you can imagine. And it takes us from a place of a scavenger, sinner, to a child at the table of the father with the rights and inheritance of part of his family. And that's great news. He cares about us as individuals. He cares about his kids. And that's what this is illustrating in this story. And then in the final six, seven verses, main point here is that Jesus is a savior who does all things well. It ends with that, like they acknowledge that he does all things well. Well, 
says Jesus then goes north to Sidon before turning southeast to the region of Decapolis, which just means ten cities. Like, Decapolis, well, that's cool, man. No, Deca, like, ten cities combined, right? And all together, this is a horseshoe-shaped journey that would have been about a 120-mile walk. And it's a, it's a decent walk. And it's not a direct, like, what's the quickest way from one point to another? Like, a straight line? He doesn't do that. It's this weird journey. It's an unusual course. And it may have been taken to further avoid the Herodians and the Pharisees who were after him, but it also may have been intended as an extension of his ministry to the Gentiles. We don't know exactly his motivations. We don't need to. He's God in human form. But the point being, there was plenty of things going on that we could attribute this unusual journey to. An extension of his mission, his ministry to the Gentiles. In other words, more dogs are to receive crumbs from his table and be transformed into children with a place at the table. He's continuing on. More people are to be transformed to having a place at the table. You guys, Jesus hears our cries for help. And I don't know if there's another story in the scripture than than these chunks that really illustrate that, like persistence and cries for help. I mean, think about it. Here's a man who's brought to Jesus who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And like the Syrophoenician woman, this man's friends were persistent. They're like, mm-mm, this is going to go down. We're going to get him in the presence of Jesus. They're begging him just to lay his hands on him. Now, as we read this, they didn't specifically say, Lord, will you heal him? God, heal him. They're like, will you just lay a hand on him? Which indicates that they were just looking for the Lord's blessing. But boy, did they get a blessing and more, Right? Like he surpassed their expectations in this moment. And he takes the man aside. His attention to this man is personal and compassionate. And he enters this man's word, world and uses sign language. Now think about this. I, I read through like three or four commentaries. It's like, okay, what is, what's with the like getting the spit on the tongue and the putting your fingers and ears and stuff? Like, God, there's got to be something to this. And a correlation throughout all of these academic books is this. And minister and seminary professor Sinclair Ferguson writes it in his commentary this way. He says, this man could not hear Jesus. And he was also incapable of verbal communication. So Jesus spoke to him in the language he could understand by using sign language. The fingers placed in his ears and then removed meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. Then spitting and touching of the man's tongue, and I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth. The glance up to heaven, it's God alone who is able to do this for you. You see, Jesus wanted the man to understand that it was not magic, but God's grace that healed him. I think this is an amazing picture to bring understanding to what's going on here because God enters into our situations. And how many times can we maybe not hear like the, the way that everyone else would, what God wants to teach us, what he wants to speak to us. Yet he personalizes his message, the way in which he interacts with us. He enters in to our situation and ministers to our heart exactly the way that we need to. As Jesus looked up to heaven, he first sighed, which I believe is an expression of our Lord's love and compassion for this man, and also his great grief over the fall of man and the terrible consequences of sin, just like, ah. Gosh, here it is again. This consequences of sin. It's the sigh of God over a broken creation. Second, he said in Aramaic, Epaphtha, that is be opened. 
Be open. And the result is simple and straightforward. Immediately it says, at this, the man's ears were open, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. The original text says literally, the shackle of his tongue was released. Like a prisoner who was bound in chains, Jesus broke the bonds of captivity and set this man free. Jesus heard the cries of his friends, knew the cries of his heart. And finally, Jesus deserves praise for all that he does. We see that at the end. How many times do we read these stories where Jesus is like, hey, y'all, kind of keep on the, keep this on the down low. Like, please don't go tell everybody. Like, I know they're going to like, you're going to talk to them and they're going to be like, oh, what happened? And you're going to have to tell them and give some explanation. But can we just, it's not yet time where the fullness of who I am is supposed to be manifest. Can we keep this on the down low? And time and time again, people are like, no, how can I not tell of what you've done, what I've seen, what I've seen you do for myself, for others? How, how do you keep that in? One can only imagine the first words of clear speech uttered by this man. No doubt he would have been praising God. Imagine that. This, his whole life he was bound by these disabilities. And God would have been getting praised and glorified in that moment as he uttered his first words. But Jesus charged him, don't go, don't go talking about this. But they did anyway. Now, as much as we can't, like, condone their disobedience and be like, yeah, good job, you guys. Like, we can't, Jesus told them to do something. They didn't obey. We don't want to celebrate that, but we can get it, right? We can kind of understand. Like, I'm not going to go be a cheer. Like, yeah, whatever Jesus said, don't, don't do that. Just go tell everybody, like, I'm not going to go there. But man, I can understand. I can understand their response. And then Mark's conclusion here has deep theological significance. It says he's done everything well, which to a people who'd been hearing, especially his disciples and those who are reading the scripture that know what it says back in Genesis 1 and 2 about he was pleased, right? And it was all good. He had done creation well. It would have echoed of God's work in Genesis 1 and 2. <clears throat> he even makes deaf people hear and people unable to speak, talk, would have recalled Isaiah, who wrote that when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters will gush into the wilderness and streams in the desert. For people that knew the scripture that were steeped in Jewish culture, this would have just echoed of this coming Messiah. It would have been like just putting up like ringing bells, right? Like, oh my gosh, this is him. Look at this. Like Isaiah prophesied about this and it's happening right in front of us. And in this, we see a redemptive storyline and a miracle put on display. It starts with creation. What God does is good in creation. Then it goes to fall. A man is deaf because of sin. And then it goes on to redemption, the miracle of healing. Finally, ending in restoration. Like there's this declaration in what God's doing that his kingdom has arrived. And restoration is happening to this world. And this miracle, we see that play out. And this is amazing news. Great news that needs to be proclaimed. Because Jesus is the God who cannot be hidden. And he is the Lord who does all things well. And for this, he must be praised. He must be glorified. These people, even under the direct orders of Jesus, couldn't contain proclaiming what had just happened. And neither should we. When we see him moving, when we see him working, even in things that don't make sense, 
See, there's a lot to chew on in the scripture today. But if you only walked away with one thing, I believe the Lord's leading us to confront this question. How is your praise life going? How is praise working itself out through your life and in your day-to-day expression and journey of following Jesus? How's it work? How's it working out? How's it going? How is praise playing out in the way you're following Jesus right now? Are you praising God in all things? Are you glorifying him, praising his name, his work in your life and the lives of others? Or are you busy just trying to figure out his methods instead of believing that he is working in all things and praising him for that? I don't know about you guys, I can get really stuck up in analyzing like, really God, why is that happening? Why is he gone now, God? I don't get that. And I'm trying to figure out, and I'm trying to figure it out. And I get so hung up, like acting like a defense attorney, trying to make God prove himself in circumstances that I just forget that in all things, I am supposed to give thanks and rejoice in all things. Not for all things, right? It doesn't say, hey, give thanks and rejoice for everything that happens. But it does say in the scripture, in all things, give thanks. Somebody tragically passes away. Somebody gets sick with cancer. Something bad happens. It doesn't say, hey, thank God for that. It says, no, no, no. In the midst of that, you are to thank him and to rejoice because we believe that he is working in all things. And so many people wrestle with that scripture because they read it wrong. That, oh, how can I thank him for that? That's not what it's saying. It's saying praise him, rejoice, give thanks that he is with you in all things, even when it's not working out like you hope it would or like you think it should or like you think it is fair for it to work out. He's there. He's got you. And you will get through this with him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, And give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How is your praise life? When people are getting sick all around the world, when economies are struggling, when politics are happening all around us, and you feel like the mask isn't just something that's supposed to keep you safe from this pandemic, but it's almost just supposed to keep your voice shut so that you don't get into some conflict or tension out in this world right now. Does anybody else feel that way? Sometimes it feels like this mask isn't just a health thing, but it's almost like a reminder, like, just keep your mouth shut right now. This too shall pass. But instead, we are called to rejoice always. And in all things, in pandemics, in this five-year conflict-ridden election season, it feels like we've been in whatever it is going on, people tragically passing away, fires burning down villages and cities and towns that we care about desperately. Like, in all of these things, rejoice and give thanks. How are we as a people doing it that? I know it's a day-to-day struggle for me. I can imagine you guys might be feeling the same. Yesterday, I went up to take my kids to my parents because I know it's the best gift I could give all of you this morning to not have them unsupervised at a table while I'm trying to lead worship and preach. And so I took them up there because Bree's gone to, to get watched by my parents. And this is the first time that the main highway into town was open that I've been up there since the fire. And I'm driving by it. And I'm just like, I have all these memories from, you know, 25 years of living up there. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I've never had so many vivid memories pop into my head as I'm looking at the charred remains of these different areas. Like, oh, that's where, this, that's where this. And God, why? 
I see pictures of people going to their homes for the first time up the McKinsey, and it's like, what is going on? And you see just uh, an entire town, like, in ashes, and then, like, one random house. And instead of just sitting there being mad at God for all of the ashes, what would happen if we say, praise you, God, for saving the house? I don't know what that person's going through, but I hope that they see your hand in this. I hope that, you know, as we talk to people that are in these communities and how the community of faith is coming together to support all these areas that are are going through devastation right now. And you hear people that want nothing to do with faith saying, man, it's encouraging to see how the faith community is stepping up in this. As we raise money and prepare to, to go help and serve in these areas, as people get to go back and start to restore some semblance of normality in their homes and in their properties, as we get ready to do that, like, can't help but think about the testimonies, the stories, the prayers, the people that will be cared for in that. Where had this tragedy not happened, they may have never had a meaningful conversation about the hope that is found in Jesus. But as the church responds in these unfavorable circumstances, there's an opportunity for God to be glorified. And if we are a people that will live a life that is out of praise and rejoicing and giving thanks, that is the testimony that will be told of a God that is good, not of one that we endure what he's doing now so eventually we can get to heaven. Because when we do that, we miss it. So many times we can focus on, oh my gosh, life just sucks. I can't wait till this is over so I can get to heaven, get my glorified body and be all, you know, comfy and good. Like, that's not the point. The point is that we live a life of praise and rejoicing now and that is the testimony of a God who was good and is in all things. He's working in all things and we can give him thanks in that. You guys, what would it look like around here if the church, I'm not just talking about ours, if the church The testimony of the church is a people that were rejoicing and giving praise even when the circumstances weren't great. Would your conversations with your lost friends look a little different? If it's like, ah, you know, I don't know about this church thing. I don't know anything about the Bible. But man, the people who say that they're following Jesus always are just like, there's just this joy that I can't understand. It's like they have hope in something more than just their paycheck, their status at their job, or their property and toys. What a difference that would make if that were the default posture of the church, one of praise, joy, and hope in all circumstances. Amen? I believe that's the heart of God in this. Is that even as Jesus told these guys, like, hey, let's just keep this on the down low. You think Jesus didn't know they were going to go blab their mouths? I think he did. What would it look like if we lived in a similar way that we just couldn't contain what God's doing in our lives and our posture was one of praise as the people of God, amen? I believe that's his heart for us this morning. I believe that's his heart for the church. I believe especially in this season, that is his heart for the way in which we would live our expression of faith in these times. So let us be a people that rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances because this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Amen? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all the things that you're doing, seen and unseen. God, from the moment that we were singing that before service and praising you, that you're working even when we don't see it or when we don't feel it, to your word (laughs) telling us that we are to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. For that's your will for us, God. We just, we praise you. That you're worthy of all of that praise and rejoicing.
Would you help turn our hearts to our default posture as followers of you being one of praise, one of joy, one of hope? And would that be the testimony of your church in these unpredictable times? So we thank you for today. I thank you for this family, God. I treasure this family you've given us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Be encouraged. I know this is one of those messages. It's like kind of way, it's like encouraging. Oh, heavy, encouraging. It's like God's good. Things are tumultuous. Things are a little crazy right now, but God's in them. Give thanks in them. Have a posture of praise and rejoicing and see how he might change your heart and bring dry bones back to life. Amen. We'll see you next week.